Thanks for that uh, special, Jay. Jay Wall is going to be taking that act to Las Vegas before too long. Jay and Ellie are moving out there with their son and family and grandchildren. Uh, Jay is dragging Ellie kicking and screaming to move closer to the grandchildren, of course. But they're going to do it nonetheless, and we're everybody pray for Jay. He's going to be in the casinos trying to help us with our building fund here. So uh, we need to make sure that he does well while he's out there. Go ahead. Eat that cake. Looks delicious. You don't want to offend your hostess anyway. Don't you eat that cake. You're on a diet. You know what's going to happen if you eat that cake? Don't tell her where you've been. She won't understand. She'll be suspicious. You won't be able to explain yourself. Don't you dare tell a lie. Doesn't matter whether she understands or not. Honesty is always the best policy. Devil on one shoulder, angel on the other. You know that picture, don't you? Many of the decisions that we have to make day in and day out are not morally charged. But there's not a day that goes by when we're not confronted with good or bad, even good or evil type decisions and choices. It seems like we're constantly pulled in different directions. And one of the things that makes it so hard is because there are good people on both sides of certain issues. Encouraging you and urging you to go in a particular way. Fortunately, when we trust Christ as our Savior, all decisions are crystal clear and we are so in love with Jesus that we easily choose the right thing every time. Correct? Of course not. You know the absolute answer to that is wrong, wrong, wrong. In fact, it seems like after we trust Christ, the struggle with good and evil, with right and wrong with sin and righteousness, increases. Not only are we dealing with the problem of sin, but our guilt grows exponentially over time because now we're doing wrong and we know it's wrong. Can this possibly be normal? Well, yes it is. If you were saved later in life, no doubt your experience was somewhat Like mine, when I trusted Christ in my senior year of high school, May of 1972, I immediately put aside much of the way that I had been living. Time and again, I had tried to change my behavior, but all of a sudden now, it was easy. I'd put away all of my vices, except for smoking cigarettes, which proved to be a little bit difficult. Everything else, though, was out the window. I had a new life and a new love. I was living large in the truth of Romans 6, that once you believe in Jesus, once He saves you, you don't have to sin anymore. The best news about this new life was it was going to be this way for the rest of my years on this earth. Easy to overcome sin. That's the way it was in May of 1972. And in June and July and August, all summer long, and September, sort of. And October, and let's just say that by the time cold weather arrived, the bloom was definitely off the rose. Now, don't misunderstand. I was very much in love with Jesus. 
And though I didn't revert back to the many of the sins that had controlled me before and held me captive, I began to sense a conflict in my heart and mind about things that I knew were wrong, lustful thoughts and, and, and wrong attitudes and, and, and actions. Only a few months before, I thought all of these sins were a part of a former life. I was, after all, a new person in Jesus. And now I was forced to deal with the reality that in many ways, I was the same old guy. Now, there was a lot that was new. There was a lot that that was different. But the old was there as well. I was struggling like I had never struggled before. Because of the guilt that was building up. And in fact, the guilt was so bad that I, that I wondered if I had ever really trusted Jesus at all. A- am I really even saved? Those doubts would plague me for five years because of a sensitive conscience and, and, and less than wonderful teaching. So I was the same old guy, but I was different as well. I may not have had the same level of excitement in November that I had had in May. But things were absolutely different. I was very much committed to Jesus and to live a far different life than I had lived before. To be honest, though, this conflict just seemed unnatural. And I wondered, how can this be? Have you ever been there? How can it be that if I really belong to Jesus, that I think and say and act the ways that I do? I wasn't aware that my experience was typical. And in fact, it had been described very well in Romans chapter 7 by the Apostle Paul. It was, in fact, part of the gospel Cycle. I had thought of the gospel as important only insofar as it helped me to understand my sin. My need for Jesus. But here was the, the cycle of ruin, redemption, and relationship being played out in my life all over again. Even though I had trusted Jesus a half a year, at least a half of year, half of a year earlier. The ruin felt just as real to me as a Christian as it had before. In fact, I was so aware of God's righteousness at this point where I had not been aware of that before. Really didn't give much thought at all to how holy God is. But now as a Christian, I understood that this is wrong. And the conflict was devastating. Thankfully, the Lord began to help me to understand the process of spiritual growth as found in Romans 6, 7, and 8. I've only recently begun to see how closely connected Romans chapter 5 is in all of this process. In this section of Romans, we, we discover God explaining to us the pattern that new life in Christ often takes for the believer. Your experience may not have been anything like mine, especially if you were saved when you were Younger, But the truths found in these four chapters apply to all of us. It has begun to seem like that it's a a good thing in in this series as we're going through the book of Romans 
where the gospel is, is detailed more clearly and more thoroughly than anywhere else. And we're taking large chunks of scripture, not like we would normally do on Sunday mornings. It just seems good to, to sort of set, set up the reading of the text. So we're not going to read the text again until the end of the service. But there are things that we need to talk about that, that will help it to become much clearer by the time we get to it. It's a good time, though, uh, to pause and ask the Lord to, to just open our spiritual eyes so that we might understand this passage. So let's do that. Our Father, we are grateful for the truth and the reality that Jesus saves. And Lord, those of us who belong to you recognize what a difference there is in our lives than before when we lived only for ourselves. Father, we also were aware of a conflict, this, this good and evil that is constantly seeking to control our lives. We recognize it's far more than just an idea, but it's the spirit in the flesh vying for control. So open our hearts this morning and encourage us even as we recognize the reality of a failure as Christians. But also inspire us and encourage us to begin to yield more fully and completely to the Holy Spirit. For only He can Calls us to live the lives that please you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're here for the first time, no doubt you already understand that we're in a series about the gospel. And as we've already mentioned, it's, it's articulated, it's described more, more thoroughly and completely in the book of Romans than anywhere else in the New Testament. You could certainly make an argument for the gospel of John, but... The book of Romans lays it out in very logical form. In the first five chapters of this book, uh, Paul laid out man's desperate condition and desperate need for something to be done uh, for him because of his sin. And it's not the sin we we realized in, in, in Romans 5. It's not the sin that we commit today that condemns us. It was the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that condemns us because of that choice that Adam made in the garden. It's passed down to all of us. We inherited it. God's wrath, which is directed towards sin and sinners, from a holy and righteous and perfect God, is more of a judicial wrath, a legal wrath, than a holy one. You broke the law, there are consequences for that. You have to pay for it. It's more that than it is emotional, although we, we certainly see God as an emotional God in the Old and New Testament both. It's no more consistent, though, with God's character to allow sinners to stand in His presence than it is consistent with your character to rob a bank or to kill somebody. If I were to ask you, you think you'll ever rob a bank? You would say, who do you, who do you think I am? God is perfect. Look at all of our sin. We're not going to about to do. But with His holiness and righteousness, He cannot allow sin 
to stand in His presence. A long portion of Romans 1 through 3 lays out the case against us and it's devastating. I heard from more than one of you how difficult it was going through those three weeks of, of, of just dwelling on our sin and our, our, our intentional rebellion against God because of the disease that we inherited from our great, 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 great plus grandparents, Adam and Eve. Something had to be done if we were going to have any hope of heaven. God, through the Apostle Paul in Romans, makes it clear that good works will never be good enough for us to qualify for heaven. Then the incredible news in, in Romans three twenty one to 26. Jesus' blood on the cross satisfied the righteous wrath of God against sin. If you weren't here and if you were in the, in the least bit inclined, please go to the the website and and listen to the truth in that message uh, that 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 Jesus blood was a propitiation for our sins and in Jesus blood the wrath of God was not only satisfied it was absolutely exhausted against sin so that he will never hold us responsible for our sins if we believe that Jesus death on the cross was payment for us Not dependent on our goodness, but we're dependent on Jesus' sacrifice for us. Repentance of sin, which must go hand in hand with faith, is assumed in Romans chapter 4, where we're told the way to appropriate this death that was, sacrifice that was made on our behalf. That's the gospel. Here's the definition that we're using for the gospel. The just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't, to bear His wrath against sin on the cross, and to show His power over sin and the resurrection, so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled or made right with God forever. But the gospel is not just the good news of salvation. We don't put the gospel on the shelf once we're saved, only to pull it off and, and dust it off when we've got somebody to witness to. Oh, oh, there's my friend David Webb, and he doesn't know Jesus, so I better you know, get the gospel. Here, I'm going to pull the gospel out and, 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 and tell him the gospel. Now, it's not like that. The gospel is all of life. The gospel is all of Scripture, the gospel story, God created, man fell, Jesus redeemed, and we respond in faith, goes on for the rest of our lives. This story is being played out in Scripture over and over and over. So it is absolutely accurate to say that all of Scripture is the gospel. God created, man fell, Jesus redeemed. We respond in faith. We're about to see this cycle of ruin, redemption, and relationship played out all over again, only this time it's after we trust our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Romans 5 sets the stage for for what will follow by reminding us of our identity in Adam. All of us were, in God's eyes, present 
with Adam and Eve in the garden when they sinned. It's just as if we were there. You know, I've been saying this for about a year, that, that, that the, the further I go, the longer I go. It just seems like I was there with them. When I came to, to Romans 5 and studied it at, at a level I never had before, I recognized that's exactly the way God sees us. He sees us as having been there with Adam and Eve. I am very much identified with Adam and his sin. If he had not chosen to fall, I would have. Well, certainly Drew Peterson would have if I, if I had. One of us would have fallen. We would have sinned. Because Adam sinned, we sin also. But Adam is not the end of the story. Jesus, who was called the last Adam or the second Adam in some translations in 1 Corinthians 15, got right what Adam got wrong, what Adam messed up. Adam was here created in perfection. All he had to do was just stay away from that one tree. Well, of course, he went to that tree and ate of the fruit, he and Eve. Jesus came and was tempted in every single way. Every way we're tempted, Jesus was tempted. But he never sinned. And those who believe that Jesus died for their sin become children of God. And now, in addition to being identified with Adam, they're identified with Jesus. There's a dual identity. If we are in Christ, we have this dual identity in Adam and in Jesus, Romans 6 tells us that in baptism, baptism, we publicly identify with Jesus, both in his death and his resurrection. In the same way that we were in that garden with Adam sinning, we were with Jesus on the cross dying to sin. Now, not in the same way that he did, but we identify with him in his death. And a dead person no longer sins. We have, in fact, the ability to choose to say no to sin and yes to God in obedience to him in the same way that Jesus did because we are identified with Jesus. He lives in us in the same way that Adam does. Now, much of Romans 6 tells us that we will live lives that are pleasing to God on the basis of of the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us. Just consider some of the truths that Ricky Mill shared with us last week from the book of, of well, from the sixth chapter of, of the book of Romans. The truest thing about me is what God says about me. I may feel a slave to sin. I may feel a failure. But those things are not true. What God says about me is true. That's from Romans 6. That truth is, is all over Romans 6. He said, we establish the value of something by what we pay for it. How many times have you said, I'm not paying that much for that. Come on. That's ridiculous. We establish the value of something by what we pay for it. God gave everything to purchase us. We can hardly be poor. We are valuable to him. And even though we have all the resources necessary to live a life pleasing to God, oftentimes we continue to live in poverty as if, well, you know, I got, hey, 
are you going to do this thing? Are you going to do the wrong thing? Or are you going to do the right thing? We just say, I, I got nothing. I'm going to do the wrong thing. I got no ability not to do the wrong thing. So I have to. Everything that God says about us in Romans 6 is true. We are children, not only children of the King, we are identified with Jesus. We don't have to sin. In the past, we had no choice to sin because all of our identity was wrapped up in Adam. Now, however, if we've trusted Christ, our identity is in Him. Jesus never sinned. He fulfilled God's law perfectly. And since we're identified with Him, we do not have to sin. Except that we do. Every day, we make the wrong choices. On a spectacular scale, it seems to us, at least in our private thoughts. What's the explanation for a sinning Christian? Is that not an oxymoron? A sinning Christian? Is our continuing struggle with sin a cause for doubting the genuineness of our faith? Actually, no. Romans 7 helps us to understand this war within our souls that seems to go on continually. It's appropriate. It didn't even hit me until just a few minutes ago. Title of this message, The War Within. Appropriate that it's on Memorial Day weekend. Those who stood a while ago, and we were so grateful for your service in our country. Your commitment is through. This war for the Christian never ends. It's day in and day out. We're constantly on the battlefield. We need to constantly be armed with spiritual armor of Romans 6 because it's coming at us every day. It never ends. There's a part of me that passionately wants to please God. And there's another part of me that very much wants to please myself. These two desires are diametrically Opposed, And they pull at me constantly so that it we all identify when we see those TV shows and all of a sudden, boop, here, here's the little devil, you know, boop, here's the little angel. And there's this war going on. We 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 get that. This war is, is explained in another place. It's, it's explained very, uh, very clearly in Romans seven, but it's explained in, in Galatians five verses 16 and 17 as well. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to. You can see the conflict in these Two verses, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have experienced this conflict up, up close and personal. Notice that last phrase in verse 17. This war will keep you from doing the things that you want to do. When I'm living a life that is pleasing to God, I'm constantly catching something out of the corner of my mind or, or thoughts are, are, are kind of... Flying over, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm being tempted to, to do these. And I, I, I want to do these other things. I'm, I'm living for the Lord, but I'm telling you, there's a part of me that very much wants to do this over here. So then I give in and I do these things over here that are wrong. 
And then I'm just thinking, oh, you idiot. How can you possibly? I I, want to be over here. I want to be pleasing to the Lord. This war never ends. It's back and forth. We usually think of this conflict as a bad thing. In fact, when I say that this, this will be for the rest of our lives, that could be discouraging. Unless you've learned how to manage it. But think about it. Uh, this is actually an indication that the Spirit is at work, work in us. Not many of us had Martin Luther experiences where we were just, just ridden with guilt before salvation. Not in our day, not in our society. We're told that everything that we do has an explanation. If it's really bad, well, it's somebody else's fault. Your parents... Your environment, you're a school teacher, a bully at school, whatever it is. Somebody else caused you to, to behave the way that you're behaving now. It's somebody else's fault. And in fact, hey, I might can even get a lawyer and help you get some money out of this. Might not be a bad. You deserve to feel good about yourself. After we're saved, that, that, those days are done. Because we recognize that we have a holy and righteous God and we recognize how desperately short we fall, even though we're a million times better, it seems like, than we were before we accepted Christ. And this battle that's going on in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, is an indication that God is at work in us. College guys all the time come to me saying... Pastor Brad, I, I, I just need you to pray. I said, okay, let's talk about your struggle with pornography. It's just, it's, it's it. It's, it's the struggle. And they say, oh, I don't even know how I can be saved. I said, now look, do not, you've got to find a way to get past this. You need to get, let the Lord, the Holy Spirit help you get past this. But I'm worried about you when you quit struggling, when you quit feeling guilty about this, is when I'm worried about you. The fact that you're struggling with this and that you desire with all of your heart to please the Lord, even though you also desire, obviously, to sin against Him. It's a good indication that this conflict is going on in your life. Well, we're going to talk more about the conflict next week. We're, we're coming to the end and we haven't even read our text. And there are a couple of things that I want us to, to think about. Uh, before we, we read Romans 7. We're going to return to Romans 7 next week just a little bit at the beginning. And <clears throat> especially at the last part of the chapter. Then we'll finish Romans week uh, Romans 8 uh, week after next. Just so you'll know the schedule. Um, there are a couple of things though let's think about before we read Romans 7. And the first is highlighted in Galatians 5. Note, notice these two terms in these verses. Spirit in flesh. We walk in the spirit. We will not desire, fulfill the desires of the flesh. These terms are used to represent the Holy Spirit and the old part of me that is identified with Adam. There are a number of different terms used in the, in the New Testament to describe the two natures that reside in every Christian. In a number of different ways that, that are used to describe the battle that goes on in our, our souls and our minds. The old part of me is called, among other things, the natural man or the old man, the old self, the, the sin nature, sinful nature, the flesh. All of those terms are used to, 
to talk about the part of us that, that is identified with Adam. The new part of me is called the spiritual man or the new man <clears throat> or the spirit. The spirit actually resides in me and is one of the two entities that is fighting for control. In Romans 7, this new side of me is represented in my mind while the old part of me is represented in my flesh. In my mind, I serve the law of God. In the flesh, I serve the law of sin. We will see in a few minutes in Romans 7. Now, it's important to understand this as we read Romans 7 because at the end of this chapter, a war is waging, uh, a raging for the soul of the believer. It, it truly is a good and evil battle, but don't think of it in, in, in the generic sense of a devil on, on one shoulder and, and an angel on the other. This is no less than Adam and Jesus, the old man and the Spirit of God, waging war for the control of me. Speaking of, uh, and, it's, and it's all wrapped up in the law. And speaking of the law, you should know that this is a primary focus of Romans 7. So there are a few things to keep in mind as we read through. In verses 1 to 6, we're told that the law no longer exercises lordship over us. We have been delivered from the law's harsh demands. Demands that we can never keep. In verses 7 to 13, though... Paul reminds us that the problem is not with the law. It's with us and our inability to keep the law. The law of Moses was and is the law of God, and it's still good. The law of God is still very much in play in a different way than it was before we were saved, but it's much in play, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today and more next week. In verses 14 through the fourth chapter of 8, 4, uh, excuse me, the fourth chapter of, the fourth verse of chapter 8 of Romans, we see the inner conflict of the believer and the secret to living as God has designed us to live. But you need to understand as we get to the end of Romans chapter 7, early in the chapter he's talking about the law of, of God, he's talking about the law that Moses wrote. Later, he talks, uses the term law as a principle. It's, it's a philosophical way of saying this principle of sin that, that lives inside of me and the, the, the principle of, of good are at war and in conflict. That'll make more sense as we go. So as we come to the text with all of this in mind to help make sense of the contradiction that our lives often seem uh, to be, Let's take courage from the way the Lord is working in our lives, even when it seems like we're far from where we want to be. Next week, as we move into Romans 8, we're going to see the power that is available to us in the Holy Spirit that enables us to fulfill the law, to live the life that we absolutely have no chance of, of living in our own strength, as we're about to see in Romans 8. Seven. We're not going to stand as we customarily do for the reading of the word. So we'll be making, I'll be making comment a little bit as we go. So Romans chapter 7 verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So here's, the law tells us what the standard is, and then it provokes these passions in us to live the wrong way. When you're trying to get a child, I mean, look, we actually contribute to this. You know, a child is upset. You, you try to get them happy by saying, don't smile. Don't you smile. Don't you smile. And, and of course, they're going to smile sooner or later. And, and if you want to get a child to do something, tell them not to do it. And they're going to do it. It's, the way, it's what happens. The law provokes these evil passions in us. And then verse 6. But now, if you are a Christian, we are released from the law having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the, of the written code. Now, now before we, we move on, we should ask a question. Is the Christian still held to the law? Is the law still binding on us? No! And Yes! No, not in the sense that if we don't keep this law, we're not acceptable to God. He doesn't allow us into heaven. That's done when we trust Jesus. When he said it is finished, the moment that we place our trust in him, we repent of our sins and place our trust in him, it's finished for us. Sin no longer has a claim on us and to say that we are unfit to stand before God. So we're not under the law in that sense, but yes... Our new life is still in bondage. It's just that we're slaves now to Jesus. And Jesus kept the law perfectly. Listen to what John Stott says about verse 6. Why do we serve? Why do we serve the Lord, he's asking? Not because the law is our master and we have to, but because Christ is our husband and we want to. Not because obedience to the law leads to salvation, but because salvation leads to the obedience, leads to obedience to the law. Let me repeat that. Not because obedience to the law leads to salvation, but because obedience to the law leads, excuse me, but because salvation leads to obedience to the law. Now, it would be much easier if that were on the screen, wouldn't it? Since I got it messed up. We don't obey the law so that we can be saved. We're saved so that we can obey the law. And this Stott continues. The law says, do this and you will live. Of course, we can't do this. Therefore, we don't live. The gospel says, you live in Jesus. So, do this. The motive has changed. 
Now we want to keep the law, but it's not so that we can make ourselves somehow good enough to be saved, but because God has saved us and we desperately want to please Him. Now move on to verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. The law makes us aware of our sin. Verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law was holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. That's true before salvation and it's one of the benefits of the Christian's struggle. When we see God's righteousness juxtaposed with our own sinfulness, we see sin for what it really is. I know you've heard people talk like this before, but, you know, the beer commercials, when, they, when they're promoting beer, and I'm not making a statement against alcohol, I'm just saying, when they promote beer commercials, they show beautiful people having good times and wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, freedom in their lives, all kinds of partying going on. And, 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 and it's, I would say, if you haven't started, please don't. Because they don't show you what the possibilities are with alcohol. And that's the guy in the gutter that's just, he's lost his family. Everything is gone to pieces. We don't see what the abuse of that, that substance will do to people. Same thing is true with just about everything. When we see on TV this, this beautiful love that is consummated apart from marriage uh, between a man and a woman. We just see all the benefits of that, but we don't see all of the the consequences of living sinfully before the Lord. And when we come before God and we understand His law and it's righteous, the righteous God behind this law, then we begin to see sin for what it is in our lives. And it's utterly sinful to us. And especially after you're saved. You begin to sense how good and how holy and how righteous God is. You recognize how wicked and evil you are, which is why we have all of these questions about, can this possibly be right? Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, in other words, what I want to do is the right thing, but I, I end up not doing it. 
And if that's the case, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in the face of everything that you're told about how special you are and how much you deserve? Do you believe what the Lord said? And look, this is not the path to bondage to accept that. It's the path to freedom, ultimately to freedom. To recognize we are who God says we are. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Is that your story? It's mine. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, if I sin, in other words... It is no longer I or the new part of me who is doing it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law or a principle or a a reality of life that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You know the times, the two times you are most susceptible to doing the things that are just really abhorrent to you? Are the times when you're really down or when you're really close to God. When you are really up. When you're really emotionally just in love with the Lord. It's like these, the sin inside of you takes advantage of that passion. And, and when you want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members the portions of my body, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is a desperate cry by Paul. Paul the believer saying, who... Help me! Who's going to help me? Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then in Romans 8, as we'll get to next week, he gives us the answer. See, here's Romans 6. You don't have to sin. Here's Romans 7. Oh, no. I, I, I'm sinning anyway. I know that I don't have to, but I find myself sinning. Romans 8. Here's the power in the Holy Spirit. Now, it would be really nice if we had this Romans 6 experience early on. Romans 7 for a while, and then we move into Romans 8 just, just like a... A plane getting off the ground and, you know, you start off fine. And then all of a sudden there's this horrible turbulence. And then you get to the cruising altitude and it's just smooth sailing from there out. But it's not that way. Romans 7 will always be a part of our experience. It will be more intense, generally speaking, early in life or at different periods of our lives. Where we're struggling with good and evil going on all the time. But... We never get shed of it. But there is great 
hope and power and peace in Romans 8. My, it's become my favorite chapter in the Bible. And I'm certain that some of you would feel the same way. You know, it's interesting that right after this conflict is described, the very first thing out of Paul's, on Paul's pen, flowing from Paul's pen and out of the Lord's heart and mouth to us is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, it could be that this past week you have failed miserably. Miserably! And you're wondering, is it really worth it to keep going? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, we're going to close our time this morning with a prayer from Ray Ortland Jr., as we often do, that was written in response to this text. Oh, Lord, your gospel is true to life. Ruin redemption relationship. It reads me as much as I read it. How lofty, how grand, how noble are my intentions. How many times have you said, I'm never going to do that again. Never. I hate it when I say those things in response to something that somebody said. I hate it when I think those thoughts. I hate it when I, you fill in the blank. How lofty, grand, and noble are my intentions, but how ugly, how squalid, how embarrassing are my actions. I see your law for the holy thing it is. And I see myself in my imagination riding off on my white charger to do battle against sin. But so often I am defeated and shamed and seen to be the fool I am. In this ongoing encounter between your law and my sinfulness, I am learning one simple truth. I really am a sinner and I really hate it. And I really want you to be my Savior. And he's not saying, uh-oh, I've sinned, so I need the Lord again to be my Savior. He's just saying, I want that to impact every part of my life. Draw near to me now, dear Lord. Nurture within me an undying, persistent, rugged love for you that will fight on through the warfare of this life, never giving in, but striving on for the holiness you have promised to perfect in me in heaven. Keep your bright promises before me, dear Lord, especially when I fall defeated in sin. In the holy name of Christ. Amen. We're going to close in prayer. And Mike Moneypenny is going to come and say a word about our benevolence offering that we take on the last Sunday of every month. Let's pray.